I was encouraged to hear uh, the report and be reminded of the report from the church in Finland as I sat here this morning a little bit more uncomfortable than I'm used to uh, and uh, convicted of heart that though uh, we may be a little bit more uncomfortable than we're used to, uh, we're able to meet together and more so the Lord meets us here and so we're able to even beyond that we're we're able to talk and contemplate such glorious things as God's mercy and grace towards us in Christ we're able to think of together by the work of the spirit we're able to think of such wonderful things as being seated together with Christ in the heavenly places and so it really was a, a work of the spirit of encouragement to me to, to preach before you this morning. This sermon is, I just thought about for a little bit, that the opportunity we have this morning, that though in many ways, in many Lord's days, I'm sure in your own experience individually, it's not always the most convenient thing to come and be here this morning. There are things that hinder us mentally, physically, there are things that seem to stand in our way, and yet we know as uh, our experience is when we show up, we're, we're thankful for the opportunity the Lord had provided for us to be fed and encouraged in Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be uh, addressing Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 this morning uh, again, and I'm calling it part 2 because we'll be looking specifically at verses 4 through 7. We're, we're still working under the unifying heading of the exalted Christ. And here in chapter 2 and 3, we address that heading as the earthly witness of the exalted Christ. So we're looking at things in which are here on earth that witness to our exalted Christ. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our tra transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, not of your, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them." Let us ask the Lord's help this morning as we come before his word. Father, we thank you that you have given us this word this morning. 
We thank you that as we read it and study it, we learn more of the redemptive work of the Son. We learn more of the power of the Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would humble us before your word this morning, and we would not only be hearers, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we, as I've been doing, is trying to remind ourselves of, of what I view or, and see as a companion text or a text that uh, is echoed here in Ephesians 2, and that is in Ezekiel 37, specifically in verses 1 through 14. Because the focus of both of our passages is not the dead status of sinful people, but rather the divine work of granting new life to his people. That is God's decisive action of recreation for his people. In Ezekiel 37, the new creation from death to life anticipates its final fulfillment in the messianic age. Whereas in Ephesians 2, it is depicted to have been already brought about through the redemptive work of Christ. See, what I understand the vision that was given to Ezekiel was he was given a vision that represented and anticipated the blessings of the new covenant, whereby dead men are brought to life. And they are brought to life in such a, a fashion as to give no credit to them. No boasting could be given to those bones when they were brought back to life, as well as they were given, they were brought together and they formed a great army. And eventually, as we move into the second half of Ephesians 2, we'll see that as the Lord had prophesied to take two people and make one out of them, a people that he would set apart for himself, that he would be their God and he would make a covenant of peace with them. Surely this, this people is what we read about in Ephesians, whom Paul writes to, whom Paul writes about whom the Spirit connects as the divine author. And so, as we now address this morning the first part of Ephesians 2, and as with Ezekiel 37, we see that it shows God bringing life where none should have been expected. And the last time I preached, we saw that the first three verses are about death and a prince. Here this morning, we will look at verses 4 through 7, and we'll see life and a king. And then eventually, we'll look at an address, verses 8 through 10, and we'll see good works and a new creation. Well, in those opening verses of Ephesians 2, we see the divine author echoing imageries of Ezekiel 37, as I said. And this was anticipated in the, in the Messiah it, it, or that was anticipated that the Messiah is in fact fulfilled through Christ. The one whom is prophesied in Ezekiel 37 was David. God was going to raise up David to come and lead his people. This Messiah figure, this anointed one, this man after God's own heart is in fact fulfilled through Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus himself during his earthly ministry that answered Pilate's question in John 18. 
Jesus answered Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We know those words of Christ. He often says, let those who have ears hear, let those who have eyes see. And so he says here, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We could also say everyone who is of the truth is giving ear, has been given ears to hear. We recognize that in some way, again, we can hear what amounts to an echo here of Ezekiel 37, whereby God, in giving Ezekiel that vision of putting together the man, and surely in putting together the bones in Ezekiel 37, ears would have been given to those, uh, to those people. And this is in line with Paul's letter to the Ephesians where in chapter 2 he makes clear that those being made alive should no longer consider themselves citizens of the world, but citizens of the Messiah's kingdom. Paul speaks in the past tense at the beginning. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He tells them there was a time in which, and we, we talked about this last week, last week in which what you did was in accordance with the system of the world you were you were citizens of the world you acted accordingly and what we have an opportunity to look at this morning is a but god statement whereby paul then in speaking of the past tense in one through three speaks of the present tense in four through ten speaking that they are are now something different than one through three. They're no longer children of wrath. They're no longer walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Something has changed in them. And certainly, a citizenship has changed. They move from being citizens of the world to, being, to be citizens of the Messiah's kingdom. And that's, as I said, where we pick up at in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2 where after establishing the original state of the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus Paul moves to explain the source and reason for their resurrection so that they again would not rest upon themselves Paul is very careful in explicating to them that what they have been given they have been wholly given Certainly, there are many benefits and privileges here that are cited. But ultimately, Paul's trying to get them that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul wants them to not fall back into their own ways or their former ways. He wants them to understand that they have been made new in Christ. And so we, we look at verses 4 through 7, we can see that Paul is intending to contrast the death of verses 1 through 3 with life. 
And he's also contrasting the prince of the power of the air with the king of heaven. He's going to say that we are seated with Christ. We're raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is one who is in the heavenly places, who is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. One who is sitting upon the throne until all his enemies are made a footstool. This is the king of heaven. This is in contrast to the prince of the power of the air. For in many real terms or figurative terms, Paul is addressing you have the air, but you have the heavens above the air. Almost as if the heavens hold the air together. And so Paul is directing them not to look upon their former ways, their former prince, but look upon the king who is in heaven. He does so in such a way that removes any first-person answer to the question, how do you know you are saved? You know, there's been a uh, clip or a video circulating amongst the social medias. Maybe you've seen it of Alistair Begg, and he's, he's giving a speech. Maybe it's a conference. Maybe it's a sermon. It looks like it's, it's more of a, of a conference-type setting, and he's, he's talking a little bit about this question, and he's addressing it as it relates to the thief on the cross, who will have an opportunity to look at as an excellent example of what Paul is saying here. But he, he, said, he, he, he tells a story, or he, he, he makes up this narration of the thief on the cross coming into heaven, and standing before the gates, as it were, and they say, who are you and why are you here? And he says, I, I'm not really sure in some ways. And they ask him a line of questionings. Well, certainly you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Certainly you understand the, justific or the doctrine of Scripture. And uh, the story goes that he gives them a blank stare. And they say, well, then how did you get here? And his answer is, the one who uh, was crucified in the middle said that I could come. He comes not with his, with his own being or his own answer. He doesn't answer in the first person. He doesn't say, well, I believed the one in the middle. Well, I came to an understanding. Well, I gave my life. I, I, I prayed a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. No, Paul would be opposed to that explanation as to the question, how do you know you are going to heaven? Another pastor, D. Scott Meadows, answers this question, why are you going to heaven in his uh, lesson on question 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism? That question is, what is true faith? But he, in, in explicating that Faith is the instrument of our justification, not the basis or foundation of our justification. He says that we should keep in mind that Christ saves, not faith per se. A believer's faith only saves him instrumentally, as explained before. The common explanation of man's decision and alleged free will justifies the expression of our concern here. Too often, Christ is almost altogether eclipsed by the act of conversion, 
which is credited rather than Christ. For the new state of things, we might ask a one, why are you going to heaven? And hear this reply, because I accepted Christ. A better instructed Christian more likely would say something like, because Christ lived for me, died for me, and rose again and promises me eternal life. Do you see the difference? One seems to have faith in faith, the other faith in Christ. What matters is not believing that you are saved. Many professing Christians are mistaken about this. But believing in Christ who saves. Paul goes through such lengths in his letter to the Ephesians. Nine verses here and arguably the extended sentence of chapter one because he knows something about the human condition. Paul goes through such lengths here in Ephesians to, to save us from answering this question, why are you going to heaven with the first person? We should, we should be taught better to answer, why are you going to heaven? To answer it, because I. That puts us in the wrong place. We should answer in the third person, because he this is what we learn from Scripture. This is what we especially learn from Ephesians chapter 2. Because he has done something. Because he has accomplished all that he has come to do. And I would venture to say Paul goes through such lengths because he understands the human condition. In other places in, in Scripture, he's... He's explained his own heart. He's explained himself as the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. He said that he desires to do good, but he doesn't do it. He describes his being as a body of death and asks who will save him from it. I would also say that Paul, in understanding the human condition, is because he understands the garden. He understands that man exists from birth under the broken covenant of works, and as such will tend towards work-based elements of salvation. If we were born in the first Adam, we were born in his tendencies. We were born under this broken covenant of works that Adam broke in the garden. So then, all the religion of man will be geared toward that covenant of works. It will say something to God, look what I have done. And this can certainly seep into the church in very heretical ways. Ways in which required such cataclysmic events as the Reformation, where the gospel was saved from the medieval church dusted off for it had been buried under a religion of man whereby man was justified by grace plus works we know the many false religions we know the many christian cults we find them easy to understand as if you were to ask maybe a jehovah witness 
if they know they're going to be resurrected on the last day and accepted into heaven or allowed to live on the new earth or whatever their eschatology is. I asked one one time and he said, God will judge my heart. And if it is good, I will be resurrected. If you talk to a Mormon, they'll speak of the grace of God. They'll speak of Christ dying on the cross. But it will be so that a way towards eternal life is opened. But not eternal life given. Not eternal life received. Not a righteousness imputed to us but one in which we are supposed to earn ourselves such that we may achieve some echelon of deity or our own self. Those are easy to spot. It is, the, it is the infusion of this in our own minds, in our own flesh that we deal with where we're able to say in many of our hearts and minds, I, I, I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I know that I, I, I'm a sinner. I know that I need Christ. To that I say, amen, and you've alighted upon that first element of salvation or one of those first elements of salvation to be justified by God. But it often comes in subtle ways. Like, why are you going to heaven? The answer to that question in our own heart may reveal to us a, a legalistic spirit, as Alistair, I mean, excuse me, as Sinclair Ferguson would say. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. In man seeking to be, will seek to be justified by works. He says, for as many of you, in verse 10, as for as many of you, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live, live by faith. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to confused Christians in the church of Galatia. He wants to save them from any view of their justification that would infuse their own works into it. But that it would be to the instrument of faith alone that it would be founded upon the basis of Christ alone. Paul also understood, as he wrote to the Galatians, that man will seek sanctification by works. This other side, this other twin benefit of union with Christ is, is sanctification. Paul, understanding that uh, men born under the broken covenant of works will tend towards works-based elements of salvation so that man will seek sanctification by works. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3, where he opens that chapter with this. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The implied answer there is by faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Connecting that to the works of the law, are you now being perfected by the works of the law? 
Are you being perfected by faith? Paul's very concerned. We, we would say that the Lord is very concerned with this in his people. That we would seek these benefits of Christ not by works, not by obedience to the law, but by faith in the one who has secured them and procured them. How is or how has Paul disarmed the Ephesians? How should we be disarmed along with them? Well, he already began with the opening verses of chapter 2, and you were dead. We should be disarmed right there. We should understand that in all its reality in our spiritual life. And you were dead. He tells the Galatians that they were without hope, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. He eventually tells the Jews in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It should disarm us, as I imagine it was intended to disarm the Ephesians. And so he wants to explain to them something in contrast to what they were. What now you receive through faith in Christ. And here in verses 4 through 7, he now shows at least three things. Here I've finally gotten maybe to the body of my notes. So if you ha- are keeping notes, all these three things are divine perfection, divine motive, and divine display. In verse 4, we see Paul explaining here what they have in Christ or what they have in their new reality is rooted, is found in divine perfection. But God being rich in mercy. In our conversions, we are all in some way or another met with the realization that we are sinners before a holy and awesome judge. As we speak about the testimony of how the Lord has saved us, how the Lord had brought us from death to life somewhere along the way, you, 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 t- you say, I realize that I was a sinner. I realize that if I, maybe I realize that if I had died this moment, that I would be cast into eternal punishment because I am a rebel, an enemy of God. I've sinned against the most holy. I've, I stand in judgment of, of God or the judgment of God. Consider the brethren who heard the words of Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He says these words. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They were convicted that they had crucified the Messiah. 
What could they possibly do? They had put the Lord of glory to death. They found themselves standing as sinners before, before a holy and awesome judge. What could they do? There, we, we're not, I'm not here to maybe exposit that verse in Acts chapter 2, but it's possible that they were actually asking, well, what can we do? What sacrifice can we give? What law can we follow? How do we then make ourselves right with God? What can we do to make ourselves right with God for this heinous sin? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gifts aren't earned. Amen? So repent and be baptized, or especially repent we don't then put that in the works column in, in, a, in a way that uh, are an earning column. For repent is often associated with repent and believe or, or believe is even given alone. These two sides of the twin benefits, the same coin of union with Christ, justification and sanctification, whereby through the instrument of faith we're made right before God. And by union in the Spirit to the one who perfectly obeyed, we are now moved by that same Spirit to act accordingly. Repent actually does fall more in the works column. I, I was misspeaking there because I had meant to say the, the combination between repent and believe bring these two elements of salvation together and they're often given one without the other but the implication is that they come together so they were asked what they could do essentially Peter was telling them look to the one who has done but here because in the context they were stirred up in conviction and, and he speaks to them about repentance. Could you imagine the sounds of joy at the mercy of God that rose among those 3,000 souls? They felt condemned before God. They felt condemned that they had murdered the Messiah. And Peter said, the Lord is merciful. You may repent. They were cut to the heart. I think we overlook that sometimes when he when peter says nothing you're condemned what if peter what if it was nothing you're condemned go into your condemnation they may have gone away sorrowful but maybe they would have went away at least understanding but god being rich in mercy Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think we often make little of God's mercy, not necessarily because we make little of God directly, but we make little of our sin. I think we make little of God's mercy because we make little of our sin. 
And indirectly, we're making little. If we make little of our sin, we make little of God's holiness. If it's just a little sin, if, it, if it's just this one time, if it's not that big of a deal, we then would be apt to abuse the mercy of God. Paul is, the Spirit through Paul is trying to stir us out of that. But God being rich in mercy. Why does God, why, why would Paul need to say that God is rich in mercy? Because of the, the poverty of ourselves. One theologian says, like all the divine perfections, it is as great as God himself. The mercy of God as a divine perfection is as great as God himself. Paul says that God is rich in mercy, not as if there was a storehouse of, of a finite amount of it, but in contrast to the poverty of our condition, God is rich in mercy. Mercy is often likened to a judge pardoning a convicted criminal. And I think that helps us understand something of God's mercy. That we're not given what we deserve. The convicted criminal deserves a sentencing. And the judge would pardon him so he doesn't give him what he deserves. He's merciful. I think that helps us understand something of God's mercy. But if we think of it as a as a one for one correlation, we actually devalue God and his mercy. For in the case of the judge, judges judge according to an external law to themselves. They have no connection to the offense. Right? The judge, he judges this person maybe is a murderer. Well, he didn't murder the judge because the judge is judging. The fence is not against the judge. The fence is against an external law that the judge says, yes, you have broken that law. You are held guilty to that law. But the judge of the world judges according to his own character. His own character of being whereby every sin is a fence against him. You see the richness of God's mercy? It's not that we sinned against this abstract law that, that exists apart from God that we sinned against God himself. It would, be, uh, it would be much more greater, though beginning to approach this in some ways, if the, if the murderer had murdered the judge's child and the, and the judge, according to his own kindness and mercy, pardons the criminal. But even then, the offense is, is connected to but abstract to the judge. The judge of the world judges according to his own character. The Lord's law is a reflection of the Lord's character. So when we find God merciful, it is infinite mercy. For what other mercy could pardon our sin against an infinite God? It is said that Augustine commented that as a display of his mercy. A murderer was the first stone God made use of 
and establishing his eternal kingdom. That murderer was the thief. We call him the thief on the cross. He was considered a murderer because he was going to be hung or crucified alongside Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and a murderer. These were his accomplices. And this was the first stone God made use of in establishing his eternal kingdom. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. The rest of verse 4 informs us that God's mercy is motivated by his love. This is important for us to observe. Because as another commentator observes, when a man's love is caused from the goodness of the one he loves, then that man who loves does so out of justice, insomuch as it is just that he love such a person. If God were to love us because there we were lovely, God wouldn't be merciful, he would be just. We wouldn't be talking about God's mercy, we'd be talking about his justice, for we would have then deserved his love. Justice would have been highlighted and not mercy has God's love been upon the lovely. But because his love is upon the sinner, the one spiritually dead and physically dying, it is his mercy that shows forth. And this love is the motivation from which our salvation is born. It is not Christ's sacrifice that causes the Father to love us. But it was the love of the Father that sent the Son to redeem the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There was no reluctance in God to be merciful, for love is active. James Boyce noted that C.S. Lewis described this love by saying, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creations in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseen, or should we say seen. There are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies around the cross. The flayed black back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the messial nerves. The repeated torture of back and arms that is, is the time after time for breath's sake. Hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. This love and mercy bestowed upon us changes our state, first of all, spiritually, and then in the age to come, holy. For what does it say? It says that even while we were dead in our trespasses, or in our, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Our state has changed spiritually. Such that 
words can be written that we are together with Christ in the heavenly places. We've been raised up. Our glorification spiritually has begun now. The change in state has begun now. The already not yet as it's, as it's been said. Here again, Paul is utilizing a Trinitarian formula for our salvation. The Father loves us. The Son goes before us into these heavenly places and the Spirit enlivens us, unifying us to where Christ is in his body. And then eventually translating us there. This makes, God's dis this makes us God's display pieces of his kindness and grace. Divine display. This is what we are. We are God's, in some ways, trophy cases. Certainly not in our first state, but in our second state. And in the historical reality of how that has come about. Paul writes here of the future state because he's working with past, present, and future motif. But he certainly understands that this, displays, this display even begins now. He says that uh, in the ages to come, he, so that in the ages to come in verse 7, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. He's speaking of the consummated reality of this in the future. He's working because he's working in a past, present, and future motif. In verse 5, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses, past, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's a, that's a present tense that he made us alive together with Christ. It's a present reality so that in the ages to come in that future age, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And though Paul utilizing this past, present, future motif here, he certainly understands that this display even begins now. As he wrote to Timothy, pastoring this church in Ephesus, in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, you can see why that led Paul to a doxological statement. That Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was under no assumption that he was perfected the moment he was converted. He claims that in his conversion he was the chief of sinners, the foremost of all. And that there was a part of that that was still clinging to him that was, he was not fully delivered of. But this was that so Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Brothers and sisters, when we talk to one another and encourage one another in Christ, 
it, it's a blessing to speak of the victories that the Spirit has given us in our life, what He has delivered us from, what He is moving in us to do now in our Christian walk. But let us not forget that the encouragement it is to each other when we talk about Jesus Christ demonstrating His perfect patience in us now. That we would all be encouraged and be spurred on to good works for, for understanding that we are in need of Christ's patience. For if we are his children, Lord knows the impatience I often have with my children when they're disobedient. And yet Christ is never impatient with me in my disobedience. Paul understands that the display of God's kindness, his grace and kindness towards us, begins even now. And this beauty could find no other origin than the one who is beautified. Our future beatification is found in the one who has secured our justification. The beatific vision is that translation of our being to glory where we will see him because we will be like him. The beholding of God as he is, is the beatific vision. It's understood that that is, that is the consummation of our salvation. This future beatific vision is found in the one who has secured our justification. And so is as secure as our justification. As we consider ourselves to display his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Know that it's, he does so as he moves us towards that vision. So let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, Jesus smiles, or excuse me, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou art worthy, Lamb of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you this morning that you have loved us while we were sinners. You sent the Son to be born of man, to be born under, under the law. Son, we give praise to you this morning for you bore our curses. You became a curse for us, you took upon our iniquities. You bore our transgressions. Spirit, we praise you. For you have enlivened us to know these things, to believe these things to allow us to move in us, to move according to Christ's righteousness. 
that we would repent. Oh Lord, that you would continue to bless us by your mercy as we continue to seek it from you, rejoicing in the patience of our Savior, rejoicing in the grace and kindness of the Father in Christ Jesus. We give you honor and glory and praise. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.